0: Season 1 of Written in Stone, the 1990s, is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com mastery over success.
1: In 1922,
0: H.P. Lovecraft wrote, Some said the thunder called the lurking fear out of its habitation, while others said the thunder was its voice. If heaven is merciful, it will someday efface from my consciousness the sight that I saw and let me live my last years in peace. And maybe some people feel this way about El Capitan. It's massive. It's daunting. And if they dare to venture up it, that trip's their last. For those people, the memories of the hard work, the blood, the sweat, the tears, and that lurking fear never fade it sticks with them, holding them safely in the horizontal world. But for Chelsea Griffey, it was different. Lurking fear, the 1976 climb up the far left side of El Cap that was eventually free climbed by Tommy Caldwell and Beth Rodden in 2000, using beta pioneered by Steve Schneider in the mid 90s, was just the next logical progression. She lived just outside the valley, She'd been challenging herself to climb harder and harder things. But with Yosemite on your doorstep, harder doesn't just mean the next grade. It also means bigger. A lot bigger. It's practically required, she said. And she'd been on El Cap before, partway up the nose before her partner decided he didn't want to go further. But all that did was plant a seed. She needed to go up. All the way up. And so when she was approached to go up Lurking Fear, she was in. And the team was smart. They were aid climbers, and aid climbing is slow. They didn't want to spend days on the route, particularly hauling up all the slabby terrain at the beginning and again at the top. Instead, they wanted to move as fast as possible. And to do that, they needed an experienced, strong, free climber who knew well the nuances of Yosemite Granite, Chelsea Griffey. So 26 hours of non-stop climbing after leaving terra firma behind, the team topped out on the route, leaving any lurking fear behind, making Chelsea Griffey the first woman of color to climb El Cap. Chelsea, welcome to Written in Stone. Hello. I am. I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, Betty reached out to you and connected us, and I have to say uh, a huge thanks to her.
1: Yes, yes, myself as well.
0: Before we jump into this, I have a, a pop question for you. On Lynn Hill's first attempt to free climb the nose in a day with Canadian Big Wall Ace Steve Sutton, he forgot the belay device... She ran out of chalk, (laughs) and they nearly ran out of water before they finally bailed. Oh, wow. But then he went up with her for the successful ascent anyway. So the question is, if you had to choose any one of your past climbing partners who would probably forget the belay device and not bring enough water, (laughs) but you'd still go up with them again, who would it be?
1: Oh, wow. Um... I would have to go with Jackie Florine.
0: Ah, good, good choice. <laughs> I, I imagine there aren't many people who know El Cap as well as she does, so that's a good choice.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: All right. Uh, I found this really interesting. You and Lynn Hill followed a sort of similar path from being born in a midwestern city to, as a kid, moving to California and finding gymnastics and then finding climbing and spending time in Joshua Tree and nearby areas and mostly focused on challenging yourself to climb harder things and then eventually to bigger and bigger walls and both of you having a really significant moment in your careers in Yosemite. Um, I thought that was a really fascinating parallel to you two and Lynn was first taken climbing by her sister's fiance. So I want to know a little bit about how you got into climbing. How did you find it being from Chicago coming to California?
1: Um, I, I already lived in LA and I ended up going to Stony Point, which is a place mm. kind of in the North, uh, West of LA. And, um, um, I ended up like meeting a lot of other climbers there and I had a, they have a lot of bouldering there. So I had a regular bouldering circuit. I would just go and do like with traverses and, you know, around entire boulders, boulder one, boulder two, stuff like that. And I, I got better at them.
0: (laughs) How soon did you make your way to Joshua Tree after climbing at Stony Point?
1: ooh, um, I'm not sure exactly if I were to guess. I would say like probably about a year or a year and a half or something like that, maybe two.
0: What year did you start climbing?
1: i think ninety seven or ninety eight
0: got it. so uh, you know, back in the seventies, Joshua Tree was like the training ground for Yosemite for for the stone masters in that whole era um was it a similar thing to you, like what you were doing at Joshua Tree you eventually saw as the same skills you would take to Yosemite?
1: Yes, however, there were another a number of other places that I went, like Idawild and
0: mm-hmm. Portright
1: Reservoir, and the Needles
0: That's cool. I bet the Needles is a great like transition spot between Joshua Tree and yosemite it's It's bigger, feels more remote um Know, similar to how you might feel when you're up on a wall in Yosemite
1: yeah and, and I would say most of that was in, it was inspired by the guy I dated for a while. He was my climbing partner and he mm. he, he wanted to go to all those places and I was like, okay,
0: yeah, <laughs> you were also a gymnast, so I'm curious what you brought over from gymnastics you know i was I was a gymnast as well, and I was a gymnastics coach um, before I started climbing and yeah, I I feel like I brought a lot of the the mindset and the you know the training and the you know just being able to use my body in specific ways over to climbing. How about you?
1: I would agree, and also I think like you always know where your center of gravity is and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I think that's super helpful because it seems like a lot of gymnasts become climbers and a lot of us that are not that tall, like I'm, I'm five, two. (laughs) And so so I, I think that helps.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I've seen lots of gymnasts excel at climbing pretty quickly. And I bet a lot of it's what you're saying that you just understand how to balance your body at all times. Yeah. Yeah. Such an important thing. When you were first starting, did you have a favorite style of climbing that you were doing between you know, bouldering, sport climbing, crack climbing. Um, was there something you leaned toward?
1: I would say bouldering and then crack climbing. And that developed partly because, um, again, not being that tall, when you're climb- crack climbing, you you can put the gear where you want to.
0: Right, right, right.
1: And on some um, climbs with bolts, like the next bolt was, I would have to do the crux and then clip. And then I was like, really? <laughs>
0: yeah absolutely i i learned to climb in the red river gorge and uh the new river gorge was also near me and both of those areas had developers who were like six foot something yeah and they would put the bolts out of reach for even the normal height folks So, so i got to experience some of what you're talking about
1: awesome yeah uh
0: Who were you like looking up to when you started climbing? Lynn has mentioned that Bev Johnson was one of the women who were pushing climbing in Yosemite at the time. Um, And when you started, there were a lot more women doing it and and really pushing limits. So I'm curious who you were looking up to.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I would say Lynn Hill, definitely. And once I got to Yosemite, I remember Dan and Sue McDivitt.
0: Oh yeah, Sue McDevitt. I totally forgot about her. Yeah. Yep. What a powerhouse.
1: And she's not that tall as well. She's like 5'1 or something.
0: Yeah, that's that's cool. I'm glad you brought her up. There Yosemite has such a rich history of women that that I think often gets overlooked and uh, Lauren DeLaney Miller's book, I think it's called Valley of Giants, uh oh, there was yeah. a a profile on you in there. Mm-hmm. Um does a really great job of like pointing to some of those women that that history overlooks from time to time so i'm glad you brought up sue that's awesome
1: Mm. yeah she's awesome
0: you've you've said before that that your your preference on big walls was to climb with other women and i'm i'm curious why
1: (laughs) (laughs) part of that is just because of the food oh really (laughs) quite frankly and because dudes often bring like dintimer beef stew or something you know a can yeah, yeah. beef stew I don't eat meat mm. and I'm like uh really <laughs> and you know part of it is just the, the com- company you keep and stuff like that and also because my first wall partner was a man and that didn't work out I was like okay I guess I'm over that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) These, These dudes aren't getting the job done and they eat like crap. So I'm going with the women. Yeah. That's, that's funny. There's like a, I mean, there's certainly a, and I, and I've been victim to this in my climbing career for sure. There's a bit of a like macho attitude about it. And I think the like, I'm just gonna eat something out of a can, which I have done a lot of, by the way. Um, <laughs> is probably part of that macho thing because you you certainly can eat better up there,
1: right? Yeah, and with the women, I remember one partner we got canned brie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: wonder if a man has ever said, "I'm gonna take brie up the wall." <laughs>
1: i doubt it
0: (laughs) i doubt it too that's hilarious i do remember a story years ago about uh randy levitt and i don't remember who his partner was but it was on el cap and they took up wine and wine glasses and um And also took golf clubs and golf balls and were hitting golf balls off of El Cap and oh wow, making it this whole like leisure time pursuit instead of (laughs) a macho wall climb.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's funny. That's hysterical.
0: (laughs) Something I, I found interesting about your story is that you you've made a point of saying multiple times, like I was the free climber on these teams, and for many people. Uh, up until the 2000s, up until Tommy made it really popular, you know, Alex, Alex Huber, and then Tommy made it really popular to uh, free climb on El Cap. It just didn't seem like the thing to do. It was all aid climbing back then. That's what, that's how you prepared for it. You know, so I'm um, I'm curious what your like progression onto El Cap was like in terms of Aid climbing versus free climbing. Were you just not at all interested in the aid climbing? Um,
1: I would say it was more of a means to an end.
0: Yeah, that's how I feel about it too.
1: Yeah, and that I, I was free climbing. I was doing just fine, and then I was like, I, I, I guess I want to do all cap, and so I wasn't committed to doing a whole ton. Like I wouldn't want to do a route that was all aid or whatever, but. If I had to do some, I was like, okay. So I've aid climbed routes, I'd already freed just to learn a bit.
0: Yeah, that's a cool way to train for it. It's, I did something similar years ago before my first trip to Yosemite. Um, it was, we would go like aid climb these routes and then haul a bag up. These are just single pitch routes in Kentucky in the Red River Gorge.
1: Oh, wow. And yeah. we
0: would challenge you know, our friends with time, there'd be a bunch of us there and we'd aid the pitch and then haul the bag and then wrap off with the haul bag. And it was like a ground to ground time. And we just kept trying to get faster and faster and faster at it. Oh, wow. Which was fun and OK. But then wall climbing ends up being so slow anyway that the like <laughs> trying to speed through that stuff wasn't really the, the best training for the wall.
1: Yeah, but, you know, time, time is everything. So going faster probably helped.
0: <laughs> totally. And, you know, that's something that you did that was really important, especially on that first wall that I think a lot of people won't even consider for their first wall is that your team was like, we're not going to stop. We don't want to haul bags. We don't want to bring a portal edge. Let's just go for the thing and try to do it in a day and just keep going
1: yeah i think it was the good a good call but i wouldn't have known to make that decision my partners were like this this is what we're doing and i think they were disappointed that we didn't do it in under you know 26 hours or whatever because i think they wanted to do it in you know a day or something (laughs) sure sure
0: i get that i that's that's what we all want right it's we want to do we want to do the thing right now exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah doesn't always work out that way though were you like around that time did you have wall mentors were were there people that you would consider a mentor up there
1: no uh There were other climbers that I knew had done it, but I I didn't think to talk to them (laughs) and be like, oh, yeah.
0: That's something I find really interesting because, um, you know, Lynn, Lynn, her first couple times up El Cap also went with women and it was kind of a we're going to go up there and figure it out on our own.
1: Wow. And
0: I think that's that's really cool, you know, that. That these women were banding together to get the job done themselves.
1: Yeah, and 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 most of the climbers that I knew personally were more like free climbing, mm-hmm. more free climbers.
0: Yeah, how many more times did you do LCAP, Cap? Three or four?
1: I think just three: Lurking Fear, the Salathe, and um, um,
0: Zodiac. That I. Did yeah, zodiac. Did zodiac. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, when you were done with the first wall, were you like never doing that again, <laughs> or or did you know you wanted to do it again immediately?
1: I think I wanted to do again, but do it again. But I hadn't really thought about it. it was I wasn't like, oh god, next route I'm doing is this. I was like, um, I guess I'll do one next summer. You know, no rush.
0: Yeah, that's a cool laid-back attitude. I guess that part of that probably comes from living in El Portal, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: I I, I laughed out loud while reading an article about you because you mentioned the gas station in Levining and <laughs> stopping there to eat. Oh, yeah. That's actually one of my favorite Yosemite memories is – Going there to eat and they had like a trapeze outside,
1: oh really Wow yeah
0: when I was there there was a big trapeze with nets under it that people could go on
1: <laughs> Wow they did not have a trapeze there when I went there, but they they had music often
0: <laughs> yeah, I love it How long did you live there?
1: uh I don't I'm gonna say two thousand one till two thousand seven or so mm. but but that would be just guessing. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, did you know any other climbers of color back then? I'm just curious.
1: Oh, gosh. No. No one leaps to mind. And I, and I think that's part of a thing that is just. um. It's not a thing that there's a whole lot of black people doing. <laughs> yeah, because there, there aren't a whole lot of other people doing it. So you're like, OK, I, I would never. People aren't often drawn to it.
0: Right, right. It's definitely growing, which I think is very cool.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: I read that when you when you topped out on Lurking Fear, you didn't know you were the first Black woman to do LCap. Um, how did you discover that?
1: I don't remember how I found out. I just remember years years later. I was like, "What? Really? Hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> wow, that's cool."
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you that you didn't know it like I, and i think that's part of like chasing the things that you want that make make it important to chase the things you want because sometimes you're breaking ground you don't even know you're breaking if you're really just trying to continuously challenge yourself.
1: Oh yeah. Yes.
0: When you found out you were what did that what was that feeling like knowing that you were the first to do this big thing? <laughs>
1: Um, I just thought it was cool, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that—that's mine forever." So I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> I'll take that."
0: Yeah, well, sure. Sh- I know shortly after that you started leading backpacking trips for women of color, mm-hmm. and tell me a little bit about those.
1: I just remember that they were the only backpacking trips for women of color in the U.S. and. I I led it for like 10 years, and I was like, what? That, that makes no sense <laughs> that it's the only one.
0: Yeah, and then you started your own nonprofit after you left there, right?
1: Not right away, but several years later, yeah.
0: Yeah, so tell me about the nonprofit that you started.
1: Well, for a while, I worked for Bay Area, Area Wilderness Training, so I was a program director you know, which means like um, getting all the gear for the gear library and running trainings and all that stuff. Um, And I moved to L.A. and founded L.A. Wilderness Training. So it was kind of on the same page because I think people need gear. The gear is like super important and people that don't camp a lot The gear is expensive or just for anyone, the gear is expensive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Buying the gear and then being able to store the gear. And, you know, there's I know so many climbers who have a gear shed, you know, that or a room in their house dedicated to their gear or something. And not everyone has that opportunity, you know, to to collect all this gear that they can just go outside and do anything they want at any time.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: When when you were doing the LA Wilderness Training, was it for women of color still, the same as the backpacking trips?
1: No, it was um it was for adults who work work with youth to take their youth out like camping or backpacking or whatever, car camping. Mm. And we were training people that were mostly teachers or had some connection you know, working with the youth and um,
0: giving kids the opportunity to get out who didn't normally have that opportunity, basically.
1: Exactly. Because I think it's important for them to get outside and see like, oh, wow.
0: Yeah. There's so much you can take from the outdoors. Exactly. Or, Or gain from the outdoors. I guess we're not taking it, but we are gaining it. Yes. Yeah. You know, it occurred to me when I was preparing for this that Uh, Lynn Hill was the first woman to climb 514 and then she was the first woman to site 13 B. And I think that sort of a first like being the first to do those things is, is just like your ascent of lurking fear. It has a real power in its representation for, for people that look like you coming behind you because now they get to look up to someone else who's done it, you know? And I, when I talk to my friends who are um, women and women of color, especially women of color, that's one of the things they wish there was more of, representation in the climbing industry or the outdoor industry. And, and you, were, you were that for people. You are that for people. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, was there a moment for you where you, where you realized you were that?
1: It it's not like it's not any more than I I made it sound like it was just like oh okay <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah yeah
0: I I think for a lot of people it was more um, and I think it's I think it's important to point that out you know um, give you your flowers because I I think it's a <laughs> it's such an important thing for so many people.
1: Wow. Um, I'm floored by that (laughs) because that was certainly not my intention, but sure. (laughs) I'm like, wow, I'll take it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's, that's the same with a lot of people who are pushing boundaries. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily your intention just to be the, in Lynn Hill's case, to be the first woman to do a thing. It's, I want to push myself to climb this grade anyway or to do this thing anyway. Um, so it's a the intention, the motivation is a, a pure motivation for yourself. And then the act of that just, just happens to be something that other people are looking up to and admiring and inspired by.
1: Exactly, yeah, I would agree.
0: Well, Chelsea, I know that you know many of the the women who, frankly, women who I admire, um also admire you and look up to you. and and they've pushed themselves the way they do, in part because you provided inspiration for them. and And I admire the the approach you've you've taken of I'm just going to keep challenging myself to do the things I want to do and enjoy the life I want to live while also, you know, giving other people a a, a taste of this same kind of life who might not have had the opportunity to get out and do it too. So, so thank you for your time here, um, having this conversation and thanks for all you've done over the last, you know, 24, 25 years.
1: Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing all this. One,
0: Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plugtone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect, and probably some you don't, including links to find Lauren Delaney Miller's book, Valley of Giants, stories from women at the heart of Yosemite climbing that includes a profile about Chelsea. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And seriously, if you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review. The algorithm loves it, which means sponsors will love it, which means we can make a season two. And together, we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents, one decade at a time. Stoners, it's been a pretty big day around here. Um, I had a breakthrough on the episode that I was a little stuck on. Uh, l- let me rewind. If you're new here, if you don't know what's going on, if you're like, "Why is he talking all of a sudden?" and you just accidentally listened all the way through the credits, well, my friend, this is the Secret Stoners Club. You might have to go back and listen to them all now, but we are a secret club and you can join it over at patreon.com slash secret stoners club. It's totally free. Uh, There's going to be bonus episodes. Actually, there are bonus episodes over there now uh, and more coming uh, next week, actually. Anyway, back to what I was saying. Um, I had a breakthrough on the episode I'd been working on that I was feeling a little stuck on. Um, I know a lot of people connected to this episode, so it, it felt personal to me, um, and I really wanted to do it justice, and I think that contributed to the being stuck a little bit, um, but I'm I'm over that hump, and I think it's going to be great, and I'm really psyched. Uh, I also had an interview this morning that I've been trying to get together for the last two, two and a half months. Um, It's a big one. Candidate for the world's best climber. And that's all I'm going to say right now. But it was a nightmare (laughs) trying to get this interview set up. I'll tell you all about it later. It was a little bit ridiculous. Uh, Before I go any further, big shout out to our newest legend, Chris Brooks. Thank you, Chris, for your support. It means the world. Um... If you're in the Patreon, just giving you guys an update here, 49 to 43, that's the tally right now. The 80s are still winning, 49% versus 43%. 2000s are closing in though there's some 2000s fans been joining in there and voting so if you are in there and you have not voted there are 33 of you secret stoners who have not yet voted in the poll you just have to go to the posts that are in the patreon right now scroll all the way to the bottom and there's a poll for which decade do we cover next 80s are in the lead Um, you know if the 80s are your jam that's great but the 2000s are closing in so you have to go vote too everybody go do it all right next week you guys we're starting next week with a really great conversation with the author of the book Valley of Giants Stories from Women at the Heart of Yosemite Climbing Lauren DeLani Miller uh, I'm really excited because her book I think is a a really important collection of stories from women who have been, you know, over the last five generations of Yosemite climbers have been really important to, um, to the progression of climbing in the valley. And, and I just love that these things are out there and telling these stories. And not just because it's a great resource for me when I want to tell stories, um, but because I think it's something we should all try to learn about so I'm excited for you all to hear that conversation and then we've got a bonus episode after that one a bonus episode that will happen in the patreon feed which you can listen to directly on patreon you can also listen to uh, on spotify And if you are a legend supporter, uh, then you've got your very own RSS feed that you can listen to in pretty much any podcast app. And there will be some bonus episodes coming soon just for the legend supporters. Um, We may come up with another paid tier that will get some of those bonuses. I'm not sure. We'll have to see. Um, Frankly, my brain is swimming right now because we've got... Some great episodes coming up, some some mind boggling and mind blowing episodes, to be honest. Um, we're ending the season. I'm jumping way ahead here. We're ending the season with a person I had never heard of who may be. No, I'm not gonna say maybe, who is one of the most important boulders in the history of rock climbing. Crazy that I'd never heard of this person. All right, I've been yammering on for long enough. Uh, I hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you for the support, for the motivation, for keeping me stoked over here to keep putting these things out. I appreciate it more than I can tell you. And I'll see you next Monday.